Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. What makes them industry giants? Get ready to take a peek inside and learn their secrets of success. This is Silicon Valley Insider, the show that demystifies the valley and helps to elevate your business to the next level. Now, your host for Silicon Valley Insider, Keith Koo. Hi, Insiders. It's Keith Koo, and I'm just so excited to give a feedback on what happened last week at our inaugural 2018 Tulip Next Generation Technologies Conference. It was all focused on next generation protocols on blockchain. And some of the highlights I'll get into is that we had a spectacular lineup of speakers. We had Dr. Vanilla Singh, Chief Medical Officer of the United States, who was also on my show last week. Dr. Madison, Chief Health Information Officer of Kaiser. Vinay Gupta, one of the founders of Ethereum. Professor Muhammad Yunus, a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Mikhail Ekman, the Deputy Tech Ambassador of Denmark. David Moss and Thomas Cox, who are actively involved with the creation of EOS, a third-generation blockchain protocol. The author, Jim Harris. And on and on and on, which uh, we could talk a little bit more about in a bit. But I think in terms of all the news, EOS, which is the world's largest tech ICO ever at $13 billion, there was a lot of questions leading up to EOS about the founders and how they created the technology and the investments that went into it. So without getting into that, EOS is literally the first completely decentralized technology that's ever been released into the public. Um, so much so that just in terms of timing of the Tulip Conference, we originally, when planning the conference, thought it would be kind of a coming out party for EOS. We thought that everything would have been taken care of. But in terms of what we found out in a decentralized world or decentralized economy, that although the smart contract for EOS, meaning that the ICO or the promise of a future technology all went off without a hitch, once those tokens were frozen in time, it was up to what's called a block producer. A block producer is analogous to what people think as a Bitcoin miner, except with just much more responsibility. It's more akin to being a governor. Recall in a previous episode when we had David Packham of EOS42 from London, uh, the EOS blockchain is different than all others so far. We call it a third-generation protocol because there's some governance aspects into that. And it required these block producers to actually vote for approval to make the EOS mainnet go live. And for a whole week, none of the block producers could get to consensus. Therefore, it hadn't even gotten approval to launch. And it kind of led up to the second day of the conference where we had to actually alter the schedule. And we had 16-plus of the world's leading block producer candidates in one room at our conference, interacting, live streaming with all the other block producers in the world and with David Moss as a facilitator to a final conclusion that about 6.45 p.m. Friday night around the world, uh, Pacific time, that everyone came to unanimous agreement and we had the green light to go forward with releasing EOS to the world. And there's much more to that story, but that's kind of what I want to report back on. So thanks for those who came to our conference. There's 1,000 attendees, 100 speakers, and just lots of great content. So look forward to seeing you at our next Tulip Conference. So one of our popular speakers is Patricia Parkinson, founder of Blockchain Babes, so popular that many of the local news outlets had asked to get an interview with her. Since her schedule didn't line up, I was actually able to get an interview with her while she was on site. If you recall, uh, a lot of folks in the media had asked me 
if either I or they could do an interview with Patricia, since she is, among other things, um, is famous for founding an organization called Blockchain Babes. So, Patricia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Keith. So, Patricia, what did you think of the conference? I was really impressed with the conference. Um, the amount of like a grassroots like, connection and openness that people had to connect on the ground was fantastic. Um, and it, it was just kind of a buzzing energy. I didn't feel at any point that um, anything was over my head. I'm, I'm super happy to have been invited here. Well, yeah, thanks again for joining us. So in terms of your own involvement in blockchain, what was the story like? Oh, okay, so I've been involved at the kind of the intersection of tech, uh, design, and finance for 10 years. And blockchain, at the time it was actually Bitcoin, had been on my radar. Um, but I first took it seriously about a year and a half ago, where out of the blue, one of my clients um, had a project picked up by Vinay Gupta around imagining um, a redesign of education model, um, similar to uh, Mozilla's Open Badges. So I brought, was brought on board to kind of facilitate think tanks all over the world on what that idea could look like, which ex- started my foundational understanding of blockchain. And then I didn't really pick it up until December 2017, when I finally had a conversation with a man named Gary Dykstra, who runs um, the Filter Podcast. Mm-hmm. And he finally contextualized the role that blockchain has to bridge the physical and the digital world. And then everything clicked together. So bridging the physical and digital world. Tell folks, how does that click happen? I didn't really understand the wider potential applications of blockchain up until that point. I had known about cryptocurrency, um, and then I started, for example, supply chain was one of the ones that made a lot of sense to begin with. Um, And then also there's obviously the the user data side of things. Um, I had read a book five years previous that from an ideological perspective spurred me on this journey called um, Who Owns the Future by Jaron Lanier, um, who's kind of considered the godfather of virtual reality and introduced me to the concept of the Xanadu Project and Ted Nelson. And I had spent five years as a nomad traveling the world trying to make sense of how I can contribute to that finally becoming a reality and it wasn't until I found blockchain that it clicked that that probably was the solution. Convergence. Convergence for sure. And as a, a, I'm a self-proclaimed polymath, I live at the intersection of different disciplines and I believe, I, I understand the true power of convergence, um, not only in an individual sense, but in an industry sense. Thank you. Um, I'm going to steal polymath. That's a great term. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of polymath. Um, I've been writing a book about it for three years, which I really wish I had published prior to Polymath, the actual uh, blockchain organization launching that now owns all the top Google spots. <laughs> so in terms of your journey, I think that's something that I hear very often for people who somehow the light bulb clicks, right? There's this thing we hear about, and we have to get past this cryptocurrency and ICO thought, which is really why uh, G.C. Lingham and I decided to do a Tulip conference that was based on next-generation blockchain. Mm-hmm. We thought there was a lot of, of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I'd done shows previously about that. And G and our team, we really felt like there's too many conferences. For instance, the week of the Tulip conference, there's over 50 blockchain conferences out there right now. Mm-hmm. But I think the key was folks like you, quote-unquote, the click happening, and they get it. It was really about how do we get past the hype, figure out what the real use cases are, and for people thinking how easy this is, because we've done lots of shows on where blockchain is, any relationship or any transaction that requires more than two people has a potential for blockchain. I think it does, and 
I think would say another really fundamental ingredient in that the click, the catalyst moment for me, was understanding the first principle of like voluntary nature. And as soon as I kind of look at the world of the lens and what's voluntary and what's not and what has the option of being peer-to-peer and voluntary, it just really supported the legitimacy of the blockchain technology in my mind. Tell me more about the voluntary aspect of that. <laughs> so I, I guess I would consider myself still new to the libertarian space within that ideology. Um, but I, you know, I've been really questioning of a lot of the things we take for granted and that we're conditioned to believe as we grow up. I've jumped between countries and um, I, very young. I've been, I've actually been on my own since 15 years old. So I never had parental uh, conditioning to a lot of the things I believe I've had to stumble upon them and have taken things for granted. And I've always questioned um, forced-based authority. Mm-hmm. And when I a- started asking just myself the simple question, what is voluntary and what is not, the world started falling into more, like coherent buckets for me. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, my interpretation of the voluntary nature, or we're seeing what's happening on decentralization of blockchain, and, and I come from a very long career in enterprise, which I wouldn't give up for the world and I love, but seeing the transformation, the revolution, so to speak, on this technology, some call it blockchain, some call it distributed ledger, it really is back to what people just blanket statements say libertarian or anarchist. Mm-hmm. There's some pretty core virtues and values in that. Uh, a lot of the companies I advise and Tulip and Token Garage are involved with is really about even giving back is programmed into this thought. Absolutely. Like, you know, one of the, I think the first things that people think of when they start exploring this topic is like, you know, I, I maybe would have fallen to the socialist bucket beforehand, <laughs> thinking like, oh, we need to take care of each other. And then when I understood free market principles and that humanity, I think, naturally will step up to take care of each other if given the option, um, that that became a possibility with blockchain. And especially now even understanding more of the economic side of um, right. voluntary inflation and how we can support our own communities and opt in and out of these communities. Like, this is a potential we've never seen before. Stay tuned for my second part with Patricia Parkinson, founder of Blockchain Babes. If you have any questions or comments, email us at info at svi.biz and we'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back, Insiders, to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo, reporting back from the inaugural Tulip Conference, all about next generation protocols and blockchain, and just what a great time we had there. So the question of the week is exactly what we talked about at the Tulip Conference, is what exactly is blockchain 3.0? In order to answer that question, we need to understand that Bitcoin was considered blockchain 1.0. Ethereum or platform-based blockchains such as Ethereum are considered blockchain 2.0, which is really just the introduction of smart contracts. Blockchain 3.0 is a little bit fluid, but there's a few principles that we talk about on Web 3.0. One is openness. So if you think about Apple, Facebook, Google, um, applications they've grown to love, they're in essence a closed system. The fact that Apple only lets you use their toolkit to make an iPhone app or Android for Google, that is as much as we loved it, we now hate them because we can't get out. So one of the key tenets of Web 3.0 is the ability to have an open system. Decentralization, we've also talked about, which is the ability to not need an intermediary or a quote-unquote a middleman. Privacy, which certainly came up in light of the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal, which is these closed systems have all of our information, yet we don't have the ability to control it. 
with blockchain 3.0, there's the potential for you to have that security. And a newer concept is incentivization or game theory, which is you can actually program rewards into blockchain applications to make you want to use them in a way that you can either gain knowledge, gain financial rewards like tokens, but all that comes in with something that's enabled in Web 3.0 as a continuation of what we know as blockchain. And lastly, data portability. We've had Eric Leon before with his Hub Token project, and we now are looking at uh, companies that are devoted to figuring out security and identity management and the ability to take your data from one place to another and other types of data. So that, in a nutshell, is Blockchain 3.0. So in our first segment, we covered Patricia Parkinson, who is the founder of Blockchain Babes, a global movement to educate and empower women and how they learn about blockchain. So we're going to continue on with that discussion with Patricia. So Patricia, tell me a little bit about Blockchain Babes. So Blockchain Babes started organically four months ago when I was shocked when I met another woman who was as interested in blockchain as I was. And we realized that we have never really connected with a woman-centered community um, and that we saw a lot of interest from our peers to enter the space, but a lot of perceived um, roadblocks from making the leap in. So if no one was creating it, we decided to get it started for ourselves. Right. And what was that process like? Honestly, really organic and exciting. Um, as soon as we put our mission out there and really rooted into um, principles and our values, um, women flocked to us, aligning with that to help us grow this organic, um, grow this movement organically. And since then, we have moved from one city in Ubud, Bali, to uh, at this point, we're looking at nine cities and doubling that within the next month. Okay. And first, how did you start in Bali? Yeah, so I'm nomadic and was based in Ubud, Bali, and met my co-founder in line for an event. And uh, there was an existing blockchain community there, um, but we didn't really feel inclusive in it. So we started a small meetup at a co-working space called Hubud um, that then transpired into moving to different cities. Oh, great. And then, so as part of that, what does the Blockchain Babes program entail? So our meetup format is quite original in terms of it's very roundtable focused. Um, we may have a speaker attend that has a 20-minute cap max to the information they're sharing, and usually we're interjected by a lot of women asking questions. Um, but overall, uh, it's very dialogue focused. Um, and we may even pose a topic for research that everyone come in and share what they've learned. It's okay. very hands-on. Is there engineering or coding involved with that? Um, at this point, no. We are looking at hackathons, but our members range from developers in the space and founders to grandmothers and teens that don't even know what code is. Yeah, well, we thank you again for joining us. You know, what was interesting is that when Tulip first came out, and we purposely talked about the Tulip Conference being a play on the Dutch Tulip Mania, which we've talked about ad nauseum, which was there's a lot of things written up about being a bubble and how people lost all their life savings, but in reality, whether that part of it was true or not, a technology shift occurred, and there was wealth and jobs and different types of use cases that came out of those types of bubbles. And we can talk about the overused one for blockchain comparison, the 1994-95 internet revolution. So when we talk about technology, and I've been in it for a very long time, when we were planning this conference out, we put the tilt name out there, and immediately on Reddit there was some hate, and the hate was oh, it's another, you know, quote-unquote, uh, white male, bald white male conference. And that wasn't what the pur purpose was. We wanted to get the best and brightest in blockchain. didn't matter what ethnicity, what gender. It was all about getting them in a room on stage together. We ultimately ended up with a conference of really high quality, 
but also it was 40% diverse, either in gender or in ethnicity. And it was, be- and we were proving that blockchain is being adopted by all stripes. I think that's so important because if we're going to build and expand the blockchain technology for the world at large, we need representative perspectives that compose that world. So that's one of the reasons why blockchain babes exist. And I, I feel like you know, what you're doing with diversity is so important because we need the diversity and those perspectives to build something that will be adopted at scale. Right. And, and the amazing thing is usually diversity programs, you pick select groups and say we want to target them. But this is organic. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to what we talked in another segment about the voluntary nature and some of the principles that are involved with the giving back, and something that uh, I think as a, as a bridging generation between boomers and millennials, right, I think that it's really cool to see, but I think it's going to make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it will, and I also think that it's almost like a baseline that if you're involved in this community, we know we have in common. It's, it's a good starting point to build relationships with people. So let's bring it back to what you had said in the beginning of the segment. So Blockchain Babe started in Bali. Yes. And now I believe you said you're targeting nine more locations. Yes. So uh, Cindy, Sydney, uh, Australia is underway at the moment. Um, in the next couple of weeks, Melbourne chapter, Brisbane will start. Then we have Victoria and Vancouver and Toronto and Canada, Hong Kong shortly after that. And we're even in conversations for San Diego, uh, San Francisco, Cyprus, and Macedonia at the moment. Oh, and London. <laughs> That's quite a diverse number of locations. How do you and your team decide on where to target? To be honest, it's around organic interest from the community. So if a woman raises her hand to say, I want to be ambassador for a city, we go through a little bit of a vetting process just to make sure that the, the value level and the facilitation experience is there. And then we've started the whole movement by building a support structure behind the scenes um, to enable collective leadership. Um, so our model is very scalable from the beginning. It's just about um, women that are curious and have initiative raising their hand to say, I'm willing to give this a go and to build momentum in my city. That's great. So... Listening to some of the talks that were given at Tulip, and a lot of them were from women, very prominent women actually, what were some of the highlights that you can remember? Highlights from the talks is honestly the level of confidence that I come across. I think that one of the things that is going to be really beneficial to more women and, and general diversity in this space is the building of confidence. And I think that that comes from having really strong role models. So it was wonderful to see people on stage that I think are really positive, proactive role models in the blockchain community. Yeah, we had Dr. Vanila Singh, who's been on my show before, Chief Medical Officer of the United States. Uh, she very clearly said, as a representative of the U.S. government and representative of the medical community, that blockchain could definitely transform lives. I believe it will, yeah. So where are some of the other things beyond just the building out locations? What are some of the projects and programs that Blockchain Babes wants to curate? We're trying to be very intentional and purposeful about how to do this. Um, At this moment, we're not a monetized model, but we know if we're going to be sustainable and grow the way we need to, that we need to explore that. And we're almost getting a partnership offer a day right now when people just wanting to get involved with our mission. Um, So some of the things that we're exploring is foundational education for women entering the space, um, more uh, progressive education um, in corporate settings um, for women that want to introduce the concept of blockchain to their organization, and even mentorship programs um, with, with women. Oh, great. And then you have a timeline, and it's all organic, but you're thinking about you know, when you're out, two years out. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure. To be honest, this has all happened in four months, but I will say my co-founders and myself are regrouping in New York in three months to make a definitive decision and to formalize this as an organization. Um, and at that point, we're hoping to have a roadmap and um, to be able to articulate. We just know where our um, cornerstones at this point. 
Well, I'm sure with the interest of blockchain, as it gets more and more adoption and more and more use cases come out, that there'll be no shortage of partners for you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one of the things I think is going to be really positive is articulating a set of values that all co organizations can raise their hand to go, we stand behind this, and for that to contribute to their, uh, the impression of their employer brand. So once again, it was great to have Patricia joining us. She has a very hectic travel schedule, so it's just uh, really special to have her at the conference and be able to chat with her. Don't go away, because coming up, we have noted author Jim Harris, who has written a bunch of books, including Blindsided. He's all about disruption and innovation. He, too, was a keynote at our conference. So don't go away. If you have any questions or comments, email us at info at svi.biz, and we'll be right back. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. I've been reporting back from my inaugural 2018 Tulip Conference, Next Generation Blockchain. And it was just a fantastic event that we've been really excited about. In the previous segments, we had Patricia Parkinson of Blockchain Babes on the show. And now we're about to have Jim Harris on the show. So today's cyber tip of the week is really more of an internal process control. So the cyber tip is a cyber tip, but really for engineers working inside companies. So GDPR, we've talked about over and over again, a regulation that was launched in enforcement on May 25th. Uh, a lot of software engineers are now realizing that they thought blockchain would be a perfect use case for GDPR. Uh, what people do not understand is that blockchain, in essence, is a immutable, unchangeable distributed ledger. So any data you put on it will stay on that chain forever. So when it comes to the European Union and soon the United States around data privacy laws, imagine that you are operating a commuter train and you want to make sure that everyone's tickets are always properly accounted for. You need to engineer that in such a way that the personally identifiable information of your passenger doesn't stay in the record forever. So this is a common struggle. Blockchain is new. GDPR is new. I'm highlighting this because Blockchain does not solve all things. As much as we advocate that people should be looking at the technology, that people should be testing the technology, it's really important to know why you're using that technology. Otherwise, you're a problem for yourself. Because where GDPR says that an individual has the right to be forgotten, how are you forgotten when you're permanently written into, a, in essence, an accounting book forever? So the tip, again, is for people to really understand not just the technology they're building, but the policies and procedures around the technology and what they're trying to actually support. And that's the tip of the week. So Jim Harris was one of our keynotes at the Tulip Conference. Jim is from Toronto, Canada. He's a famed author of several books, including his latest called Blindsided. And when you hear Jim, he's all about what's disrupted in the past and what's going to be disrupted in the future. Let's just listen in. Jim, you gave a phenomenal talk. We were all very impressed, so thanks for being here with us. Thanks so much, Keith, and it's great to be on the show. So, Jim, tell me a little about yourself. You're out of Toronto? So, uh, yes, out of Toronto, uh, from the Great White North. And uh, I began as a uh, journalist, and I ended up writing uh, a book called The 100 Best Companies to Work For in Canada 30 years ago, and that put me out looking at 
corporate excellence. And uh, then my second book was called The Learning Paradox because after the 100 Best Companies came out, the, one of the best companies, IBM, laid off 200,000 people worldwide, so uh, half their workforce. So I began asking, what creates job security? And the second book, the insight was that what creates job security is learning, changing, and accepting uncertainty. And what most people as adults fear is learning, changing and uncertainty. So it's a paradox. So our very job security is paradoxically based on what we fear the most. So uh, that began a process. And then uh, my last book, I was looking at what what is creating the accelerated uh, rate of uh, decline of many organizations, disruptive innovation. And uh, so it all seamlessly flows out of uh, these three books flow out of each other. So one of the questions that I, I think is really interesting is uh, uh, I asked uh, the CEO of a Canadian company, it was Sun Microsystems, so Sun doesn't exist anymore, That's but, right. but uh, Everett Ansi was the Canadian uh, head of Sun, and uh, I asked him, uh, you know, what, what creates security for you? And he said, if my job isn't, uh, if 25% of my job is not completely different, I get very worried. So it's a great metric for me to use in my personal life. Like, what 25% of what I'm doing this year is entirely different from what I did last year? Right. So, you know, are you engaged in new, the new uh, space, just like Tulip 2018 has been focused on uh, EOS and blockchain and crypto and disruptive innovation? Uh, are you focused on these new things in your day-to-day work life? Uh, you know, 75% of what you're doing is uh, the bread and butter of what makes your top and bottom line revenue. But are you out there playing, inquiring? So this is an important discipline. It is. And, and normally, it's interesting we say 75-25 because in the Pareto rule, it's 80-20. So, it, it, but it's the same concept, right? It's the It's the how are you innovating yourself or disrupting yourself before it happens to you. Yes, absolutely. Plus, it's just fun. (laughs) It's like, uh, you know, as we get to be adults, we lose the sense of play because we like the sense of mastery. So we like to feel in control. But if you're, by definition, going into an entirely new field, you've become a beginner again. Yeah, I like that you brought up Sun Microsystems, right? Um, my background has been uh, doing the business side of technology. I used to buy a lot of Sun Microsystems for a company called Cisco Systems uh, in the nine figures a year. We used to be one of the number one customers, and nobody ever thought that was going to end. You probably recall there was a point in time where Scott McNeely, the global CEO of Sun, um, had the opportunity to buy Apple. No, really? Yes. Uh, he had an opportunity by Apple, and Apple was on the ropes. Apple at one point Oh, well, I remember point. Apple was on the ropes, and Microsoft put in $150 million, which would have been the best freaking investment ever that micro- Microsoft made. It was at trading at $2 a share. So this is what's really a couple of things, and I don't know which story to say first. Well, I'll get to the end first. So Sun's demise, ultimately, they were worth very little, and for about $6.5 billion U.S. dollars, they were purchased by Oracle. That was the that was the cutting to the chase. But all the things that led up to their demise where they had an operating system called Solaris. And it was a proprietary closed system. And ultimately, 
you know, open systems, like whether it's uh, Linux or whether it's the open philosophy that you apply to management, which is what uh, blockchain offers decentral exactly. innovation. And the challenge is control. You see, in the old paradigm, command and control, you had a CEO like Scott McNeely. Right. Uh, but in the new paradigm, it's the wisdom of the group. Well, who's in charge? Well, everyone and no one. Right? It's, it's like this Zen cone, you know? Well, that's the funny thing. Scott McNeely, and, I, and my years escape me now, but he had mentioned at some point post-Sun Demise. And Sun, you know, Scott lasted on the board of Oracle's new company. He said, you know what? It's a good thing that the deal where we could have rescued Apple didn't fall through. Because if we bought Apple, and he was being very blunt, and we'll look it up on Google, he said, there'd be no iPhone, there'd be no iTunes, there would be nothing of that sort, because we would have just kept them, the old Apple, and that would have been it, and we both would have been dead. So he's quoted in a newspaper many years ago. But that's where I think it's fascinating what you focus on, because you're actually really encouraging people, the 25% a comment you're saying to disrupt yourself. You're really encouraging people to disrupt yourself now or get disrupted. Yes. So I was working with a group of CEOs, and one of the CEOs said to me, Jim, what you're really saying is pretend we were our own competitors, knowing our own weaknesses, because who else knows our weaknesses better than we do? How would we, if we were an external competitor to ourselves, slaughter ourselves? So if, if I'm always looking to disrupt myself, I'm pushing myself out of my comfort zone into that discomfort zone and playing where I am, once again, a newcomer, right? It's like I'm not in control. I, well, I don't feel in control because I'm in an entirely new uh, area of uh, domain expertise where I, I'm like a, I am a novice again. So uh, children are very happy to do this because children know they know nothing. <laughs> the illusion with us as adults is we think we know stuff. And... It's true, we do, but relative, I, do, I do this thing where imagine from the ceiling, it's about a 15-foot ceiling here to floor, is the pillar of knowledge, all knowledge in the universe. Uh, where does all human knowledge fall on the scale of all knowledge? It's a, where do you think it would fall? At the top, in the middle, or very close to the bottom? I wouldn't be able to tell you. I, I would think somewhere in the middle. Okay. Well, that's all human knowledge. Where does my knowledge fit amongst all human knowledge? Oh, very little. Very little. So if I know very little of very little, am I not a child my entire life? That's great. So we have to get comfortable venturing back into that zone where we're a novice. So I'm saying 75% you're an expert, but keep venturing into that new area. Um, and it's interesting, you know, Scott McNeely tasked a group to create Java, and the guy he hand-picked was James Gosling. Uh, um, did I get that? Is it James Gosling? Anyways, he's a Canadian. Okay. I interviewed him. And uh, when he actually uh, created, well, he didn't create, he created the team that created uh, Java. He took a, a dozen super bright, he was a Sun Fellow. He took a, a dozen people off campus and they worked away to create Java. And when I interviewed him, I said, why did you go off campus? He said, because otherwise the corporate antibodies would have got us. It was the same thing when I was at Cisco Systems. There was a lot of criticism, so I won't get into the politics behind it, but it was a point in time where we were post-dot-com bust and we were doing M&A integration or M&A. Um, 
we would actually put companies, we call them spin-ins, we'd put them on our campus firewalled off. So Cisco building, Cisco infrastructure, but technically firewalled off so they weren't part of it and they were a separate entity for the exact same reason because there needed to be a, a, a physical separation of some sort for the innovators. I mean, and this is where the politics came up, but the innovators versus kind of this slow and steady. Because if you look at what Java is, it was disruptive to Sun's current business model with Spark servers and a, a closed proprietary OS. Why would you want to make your OS interoperate with everyone else's OS. We want to force people who are sun shops to buy more sun. We don't want to integrate with anything else. So this is the battle between the proprietary closed and the open mindset. And in the political power structures within sun, it was James's fear that people with, you know, political uh, capital would try and kill his project. So he needed to isolate it from you know, the powers that be within the structure of Sun. So um, if you're doing something that is truly disruptive to the current business model of the uh, existing business, those in the lines of business will try and shut it down. As you can tell, Jim has a lot of energy and he's been covering this space for a very long time. Lots of great stories. So in our final segment, Jim's going to talk about how Kodak invented the first digital camera and it actually weighed eight pounds. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Email us at info at svn.biz. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. So welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. Today's show has been with Patricia Parkinson, the blockchain babe, and with author Jim Harris, of Blindsided. Uh, we, in the last segment, had Jim talk about a lot of experience in technology and was just about to get into the world's first digital camera created by Kodak, and that weighed eight pounds. For instance, the first digital camera was invented inside Kodak by a 22-year-old engineer. Now, if you actually look at the thing, it's a monstrosity, right? It was eight pounds, right? It uh, recorded to a cassette, you know, yeah. like the old cassettes. And uh, it took only black and white photos, and it was like point zero 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 one megapixels, right? <laughs> but anything that follows Moore's law, improving exponentially over time, gets smaller, faster, cheaper. And years later, you know, a dozen years later, it was beginning to move into, you know, a reasonable area where it could uh, become a commercial product. But Kodak, you know, like if you were, imagine you were SVP of uh, photochemical sales globally, right? You know, $250 million market, and you look at this thing and go, where's the photochemicals? Like, there aren't any. Well, you might rationalize, well, nobody's going to want this. It's eight pounds. Who's going to carry around an eight-pound camera? Well, that's not the point. The point is it's going to change over time. So there is this tension often within organizations about disruptive innovation because if the disruption were to be carried through to maturity, uh, it would threaten the existing power structures within and the people within the current organization. Absolutely. So, Jim, let's do this because we're out of time on this segment and we're really leaving people off a cliffhanger. We haven't even got to blockchain yet. 
So let's have you call in or have you back on the show next time you're in the Bay Area because we really should dive into this. I would love to be back on the show. I've, I really look forward to it. And uh, on, so, on Twitter, I'm at Jim Harris if you want to uh, follow me. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn. And so it would be my delight to connect with any listeners. So once again, I just want to thank Jim Harris for being a keynote at the Tulip Conference. He, amongst many other great speakers, filled out an entire two days, and we appreciated the 1,000 attendees, the 100 speakers, all the companies that participated, and we will be taking Tulip Conference next to Asia, where we've had many requests for similar content. And once again, there's a lot of blockchain content out there in terms of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but we like to think that we were the first in bringing you to the source of the spring, so to speak, that these were beyond investment advice on cryptocurrencies and ICOs, but these were the actual builders of the technology, folks like David Moss and Thomas Cox, who actually built the software and the governance system to EOS. People like Wolf Cowell, cryptonomics professor, Andre Verbitsky, tokenomics expert, and many, many others. I want to also thank Dr. Vanila Singh again for being a keynote, bringing the message of what the U.S. government and the medical community want and need out of a technology like blockchain. So I think there's a lot that's going to be shaping in the next weeks and months, including our next Tulip Conference will could possibly be in the U.S., but most likely been requested to bring it to greater Asia, China, and India. So look forward to those announcements as we get more information on our next locations. I wanted to bring up also a couple of announcements. I will be keynoting the Cybersecurity Delegation and Roadshow in Hartford, Connecticut. That's in partnership with Upward Hartford and the Center for Innovation and Commercialization. I'll be speaking to about 500 CISOs or Chief Information Security Officer on cybersecurity and the relationship to blockchain. So I want to thank those groups for inviting me, and I'll be sure to follow up with the listening audience on what happened at that event. Also, IBM has a call for code, which is, in essence, IBM putting in $30 million of investments and inviting coders and groups of coders, whether you're an individual or teams up to five, to participate in this unique experience of developing software that can solve real-world problems. In this case, it's disaster management. So we think about the volcanoes going on in Hawaii, floods, hurricanes, earthquakes, fires. Um, IBM is actually putting in $30 million again to seed companies to develop these solutions. So if you're a team between one individual or five, the program is open from June 18th through August 31st. The winner will be announced on October 2018, live-streamed with a concert coordinated by David Clark Cause. And I just really encourage that if you're interested to email us at info at svn.biz for more information. We'll catch up with you next week. And this is Keith Q of Silicon Valley Insider. Thanks again. You've been listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. For questions or comments on today's program or to schedule a complimentary consultation with Keith about your business, call 1-888-828-SVIN. That's 1-888-828-7846, 888-828-SVIN.